You're listening to Beltway Beef, official commentary from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Washington, D.C. office. Welcome to the Beltway Beef podcast. This is Ashley, and today I'm joined by Ethan Lane, the Vice President of Government Affairs here at NCBA, a a very familiar voice here on the podcast. But Ethan, just wanted to get you on to give us a general monthly wrap-up. March was a big month for us. March was a big month. There is a lot going on in Washington right now. I always have to remind myself after, you know, more than a decade of doing this in Washington that this is always the busiest time in Washington. You know, we, we kind of feel like, gosh, this is busier than it's ever been. But it's always busy this time of year. But this has been a, a particularly busy few months. Um, we've seen the introduction of quite a few pieces of legislation, some expected, uh, things like the reintroduction of the Halls Act. That's the uh, Senator Fisher bill that we've been working on for several Congresses now uh, to add an additional 150 air mile uh, extension to the back end of a livestock haul. Um, we also saw the reintroduction of the Death Tax Repeal Act. Uh, that's a bipartisan piece of legislation that is really a critical marker to get out there and help Congress understand why the death tax is such an egregious penalty, particularly for ag producers and cattle producers uh, that are trying to maintain the value of those of those ranch operations uh, between generations. Um, we've also seen the introduction in the last few weeks of uh, several cattle markets bills, uh, both of which we've seen before. The uh, the Grassley 5014 bill uh, was just released last week, and and uh, Senator Fisher's Cattle Markets Transparency Act uh, was released a few weeks back. Um, Those are both um, sort of basically the same bills we saw in the last Congress. The Fisher bill has changed uh, a bit uh, in the addition, uh, uh, not just of those regional trade requirements, but a three-year average uh, of cash trade for the Secretary of Agriculture to use in establishing a minimum uh, for negotiated trade in those those areas. And and then we've also seen some of these larger pieces uh, moving through Congress. Obviously, that $1.9 trillion dollar uh, uh, COVID relief package passed Congress and is now uh, moving out into the country. Uh, and, and just yesterday, we saw the introduction of the president's infrastructure package, um, which is going to be another couple trillion dollars uh, were it to move forward, uh, dealing with a lot of those infrastructure priorities that we've been talking about for three different presidential administrations now, at least uh, here in Washington, things like rural broadband, uh, are included in that to the tune of about $100 billion um, to, to, to really get that rural broadband access that we need around the country. Um, a lot of other priorities having to do with roads and bridges and a lot of other things in there too that I think you could make the argument don't really fit uh, in an infrastructure bill, right? I mean, everything in Washington right now kind of has the, a little bit of a climate change uh, angle to it. There's a lot of uh, those types of things that are going to find their way into just about everything we do in Washington. Um, there's a lot in there, though, to like for rural uh, for rural America and for cattle producers, but how they pay for it is something that we're going to have to keep a really sharp eye on, um, because that's an area where we think there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, probably concerning proposals moving forward in the next few years, Um, that could disproportionately impact agriculture. So that's very quickly becoming one of the most pressing issues here in Washington for cattle producers. Yeah, so no shortage of news uh, coming out of the DC office for this month, but let's just backtrack for a second. You talked about the legislation that was introduced, so Halzak, death tax, and then some cattle market bills. So that legislation has been introduced. What happens now? Well, so, so like any Congress, now we start the co-sponsor race, right? And, and building that bipartisan support is critically important uh, for getting these pieces of legislation 
moving. So it's a lot of the, the kind of shoe leather lobbying, boot leather lobbying that we spend a lot of our time doing here in Washington, uh, talking about these pieces of legislation with members of Congress, uh, fielding questions, giving them some technical uh, input on how these pieces of legislation may impact them in their particular districts or impact their constituents. Um, there's a lot of our state affiliates that'll be talking to their delegations about these different bills. Um, that's why these things take time. You know, we've kind of gotten used to these lightning quick bills in the last year with COVID where, um, you know, these packages come together and boom, in six weeks, we're pushing something to the president's desk. That is really not normal. Normally, these pieces of legislation, even if they're sort of generally accepted as something everybody likes, take uh, a year or two at a minimum to move through the process. You know, they need to have hearings uh, before the relevant committees. Um, there needs to be a real examination of it. And then, of course, we're dealing with uh, one of the most gridlocked Washingtons we've seen in quite some time. Very narrow Democratic majority in the House and a dead 50-50 split in the U.S. Senate um, with a few of those moderates uh, on both sides of the aisle wielding an incredible amount of power over what moves through the U.S. Senate. Um, that's going to play into all of this. And, and quite frankly, we're still seeing a little bit of uh, retribution and, and kind of uh, uh, score settling shaking out from the January 6th uh, 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 unrest at the Capitol. And, and, you know, obviously we're all following the arrests and the, the trials and the things that are happening for the participants in that. Uh, but on Capitol Hill, we're still dealing with that in terms of members of Congress who may have voted for uh, those to decertify those Arizona electoral votes. There were 147 Republicans in that in that bucket. Some of them are, are still being kind of kept off of pieces of legislation by Democrats. There's a little bit of game playing happening there. Um, and, you know, we're hopeful that we're going to see sort of the end of that here soon. We're hopeful we're moving past that and getting back to some regular business because there's simply too much to work on here in Washington at the moment um, for us to continue uh, talking about and, and, and dealing with some of what happened a few months ago, uh, uh, egregious as it was. Um, we need to get back to the business of doing what Washington does. So we're, we're hopeful that that's increasingly in the rearview mirror. We're starting to see more bipartisan bills. We're starting to see Democrats sign on to things that they would traditionally sign on to. So I'm hopeful that's in the past, but uh, there are a lot of moving parts that, that need to come together here for some of these bills um, to really move. And that's that's really kind of what we, what we do best back here. And, and uh, our team here in Washington is hard at work on all of those, uh, as well as, you know, all the other issues that we're always working on. We have a new uh, U.S. trade representative, Catherine Tai. So we have a, a robust trade agenda um, that we're going to continue to be very deeply involved in. A lot of conversations happening with the U.K., China, Japan, um, you know, those things kind of are always a drumbeat in the background as these other items are, are, are moving forward. Um, and then we still have that kind of full featured conversation about climate change in the ag space. Secretary Bilsack um, has made it clear that he's very interested in setting up some sort of a carbon bank that could pay producers uh, for sequestering carbon on their properties. But there's a lot of congressional disagreement over whether USDA has the authority to do that right now using the Commodity Credit Corporation, which we used for those CFAT payments, um, or whether Congress needs to give them some more clear approval and direction before they can do that. So we're back into that loop, right, of trying to find that bipartisan support on Capitol Hill um, and what that might look like. Well, and I think it's important, Ethan, to kind of point out how many times you said bipartisan support and pointed out that your <laughs> staff is is working across both sides of the aisle, because I think that's the value of having NCBA here in DC and, and having us in a position where 
you know, we don't necessarily care who introduces the bill as long as it's going to benefit the cattle industry and, and be good for rural America. Hey, we we have a lot of friends on the Democratic side of the aisle. And look, I mean, I'm from I'm from Arizona. A lot of our producers are from red states. Um, and, and, you know, I understand that those conversations in, in, in some of those states look very different. Um, you know, here in Washington today in 2021, the power is very squarely vested in the moderates on both sides. We're hearing from the, from the extremes, right? We're hearing from the, uh, the progressive wing, the, the super liberal wing of the Democratic Party. We're hearing a lot from the Freedom Caucus wing of the Republican Party. But that's, that's really a lot more noise than it is actual work product. Um, the real work gets done in the middle. And, and that's where we try to concentrate our efforts. That's where we put our focus. Um, that's, where we, that's where we really find true allies of this industry that are willing to find those, those uh, partners across the aisle um, and try to find some ways to, to make some progress for producers across the country. So yeah, we do say bipartisan a lot and we mean it. I mean, it's, it's critically important right now. Well, that, that's good to hear you say. And I think good to remind folks um, that that's what we're doing here in DC. And, and that's why it's so important to, to have this office here. But earlier you talked about uh, Biden's plan that he introduced yesterday. Uh, you kind of alluded to taxes. Um, and I know there's been that conversation about budget reconciliation. Can you just kind of tie all of those concepts together for us? Sure. Because of that partisan gridlock, because we're in uh, an evenly divided Congress, Democrats have identified the budget reconciliation process, which requires a simple majority vote. It bypasses the, um, you know, the, the, the normal 60 vote thresholds in the Senate that can sometimes bog legislation down in the Senate. They've identified that as a tool uh, that they can use to advance priorities through Congress and to the president's desk without needing to engage Republicans. Um, they did that for that $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a tool that's been used on both sides of the aisle historically over the years. Um, it was used, uh, you know, in, in 2017 for the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. I mean, there are, there are, um, there are times in the past where we've seen that, that used. This is sort of a new environment where they're looking to use that multiple times in a year, right? They want to go back to the well on that tool. Um, the question is whether or not that is good political strategy uh, on an infrastructure package like this, where there should be a lot of bipartisan appeal. You know, where they're going to run into roadblocks is in the pay force. You know, um, when you start talking about massively increasing corporate taxes, when you have a lot of conversations about eliminating stepped up basis, which is critically important uh, for agriculture and for cattle producers, when you talk about and hear conversations about rolling back uh, the death tax exemption to 2009 levels, you know, 3 million. Um, much lower levels than we've seen in the last few years and that we've achieved um, through that 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Um, that's where things start to get sticky. And it's going to be interesting to see whether Democrats can hold their coalition together to do something like that through budget reconciliation again. What they could do is basically say, we need to go back and, and make corrections to the budget, right? We need to go do this again um, and use that as a vehicle to advance something like this. They have a real challenge there because they could potentially lose some of those critical moderate Dems that they need to get that through the House of Representatives. Never mind the Senate. That's a whole different conversation with folks like Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, in a very strong position there. 
But just in the House, you have some very vocal moderate Democrats who have uh, made it very clear that they're spectacularly uncomfortable going down this road again. Um, that's something that Nancy Pelosi and, and, and her caucus are going to have to spend a lot of time trying to figure out. And what are they going to have to give up to get Republican support on a bill like that? Um, that's really where we are in this conversation. The president's, uh, the president's outline this week is an opening bid. And that's the thing that people need to keep in mind. Um, this now starts the real uh, horse trading, so to speak, over, over what becomes law. I think everybody in Washington is in the same spot. Gosh, let's finally get some infrastructure work done. Um, but it, it does matter how we pay for it. And, and we are going to work extremely hard to make sure that we don't uh, balance those scales on the back of cattle producers around the country who have already uh, taken way more than their share of hits over the last couple of years. Um, so that's really going to be kind of our top priority in that conversation is making sure that uh, that we don't end up paying the bill for that unfairly. Right. And, you know, I think it's important to just reiterate that at the end of that, you mentioned that we can't balance the budget on the backs of farmers and ranchers. And, you know, even when there's a lot going on in D.C. that you may think may not have a lot to do with rural America, you and your team are are in there making sure that uh, rural America is, is still getting the, a good end of the bargain here and, and making sure that everything is is fair and equitable um, to make sure that we're looking out for our members. It, it, that's that's right. And, you know, you hate to make it into an urban versus rural conversation, but, but you know, especially when you talk about things like infrastructure uh, and taxes, you, you can't avoid it. Right. Because, I mean, a lot of these a lot of these tax proposals really do disproportionately impact landowners. Um, there's a big move in Washington right now on the Democratic side of the aisle to tax anything that feels wealthy, right? If it feels like wealth, if it feels like it's, it's you know, air quotes, the rich, um, they want to tax it because that plays well to a lot of their base. Uh, but in, in the ag community, where you have a lot of producers, the vast majority of them uh, have a lot of assets, but they're illiquid assets, right? It's not, it's not a, a business where people have huge amounts of cash sitting in the bank. They have large amounts of land. And that land has a value, um, but it's a tool for, for their operations. So, you know, that's the part of that conversation that's pretty nuanced for agriculture and, and where we're going to have to spend a lot of time educating um, some of these more suburban and urban members of Congress that don't necessarily deal with a lot of large landowners um, in their districts about just how big an impact that is. This isn't about, you know, some sort of trust fund family passing on millions of dollars um, from one generation to the next. This is making sure that when uh, a son and daughter take over, you know, their their parents' cattle producing operation, um, they're able to keep it without trying to figure out how to cover a 45% uh, penalty, you know, upon the loss of their parents uh, to transfer that operation and keep it in family hands. Um, and that's that's the way we're going to have to help illustrate this for folks: is that tangible, you know, uh, risk to our our food security and our and our food production system. Not to mention these rural economies if we don't ensure that, that we're not disproportionately impacting our cattle producers. So um, it's, a, it's a big lift and it's a conversation that we're ready to have. We're already having it uh, uh, on multiple fronts on Capitol Hill and, and we'll continue to. And we have some strong allies on the Democratic side of the aisle. I mean, the, the Death Tax Repeal Act is uh, co-sponsored by Sanford Bishop. He's the, uh, he's the chair of the Ag Appropriations Subcommittee uh, from Georgia, um, a strong Democrat and, and understands the value of this um, and the importance to, to keep, uh, keep cattle producers out of the crosshairs on this. So um, we have some strong allies on both sides of the aisle and, and we look forward to, to moving the needle on this and, and keeping producers uh, from being impacted here. 
Right, you mentioned that we have strong allies on both sides of the aisle, but I think the other thing that we have in our back pocket is producer stories. And I think this segues in perfectly to talk about our death tax letter campaign that we're launching this week. And so we're really calling on producers to share your story and, and we'll go ahead and make sure all of our members and, and all of our affiliates have that link so that they can write letters to their members of Congress to talk about why repealing the death tax is, is so important for rural America. I, I can't stress enough how important those stories are. You know, it's one thing for us to say generally, hey, this could have an impact. But when you start to get those those real world stories, this is how my family was impacted. This is what it cost us. Um, you know, I, I gave an update the other day uh, to our executive committee, and I got an email from from uh, one of our fantastic producers. Um, that, uh, she's been in leadership in, in various capacities for a long time, and she uh, detailed an email to me. You know, her own personal family story in, in that regard. And, and boy, I mean, it's just. Uh, if you if you don't understand the impact, if you're outside of agriculture, um, you know this is the time we need to educate you and we need to get you up to speed and help you understand why this is so important. Absolutely. Well, Ethan, thanks so much for joining the podcast this week. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Great to be with you, Ashley. Thank you. This has been another episode of Beltway Beef, official commentary from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Washington, D.C. office. Don't forget to check us out online at policy.ncba.org or catch the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify at Beltway Beef, also on Twitter at Beltway Beef. We'll see you next time.